Special shout-out this week goes to our newest $5 a month tier patron, Willie Pittman. Willie, thank you so much for your support. Appreciate it. Goes a long way. And let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Amphibicast. This episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by Grey Ghost Creations. Specializing in unique wildlife art for lovers of reptiles, amphibians, and arachnids, Grey Ghost Creations offers a wide variety of art prints, stickers, pins, necklaces, and more. To find more unique original art, be sure to visit Grey Ghost Creations on Etsy at www.greyghostcreations.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. End of the year, holiday spectacular. Um, I want to thank everybody before we even get into it tonight, just everybody, all the new listeners and everybody who supported the show for the past, uh, well, three years and going into the fourth year here. So before anything foremost, thank everybody who's listened to the show. Thank everybody who supported me. Uh, We've come a long way, and a lot of it's also dependent upon the audience. I want to thank all you guys and all my guests, everybody for the past couple of years and especially this year for making the show worthwhile and just making it an entity in and of itself. And I appreciate that. So thanks a lot, everyone. Moving forward, it's going to be a lot of fun. This is actually going to be the last episode of 2023. And I'm going to take a little break. I'm still recording, but I'm aiming to release some new episodes coming up around the middle, maybe end of January. I've already got people lined up. My January schedule is already booked into February, so I've got a lot of people lined up. And 2024 is going to be a banger year, and I'm looking forward to it. But um, yeah, thanks everybody for you know joining me along the way. And um, what better way to end the year than with my favorite guest to have uh, at the end of the year, my favorite uh, Christmas time guest, Mike Titula. And uh, we're going to join Mike in a minute. But of course, other stuff out of the way, of course, thanks everybody for your patronage, five-star reviews, anybody who picked up stuff at the merch store. Any way that you want to support the show, check out the link tree in the show notes. That'll take you to everything. The merch store, your 10% off in-situ ecosystems discount. The Patreon, if you want to become a patron, of course, it's a great way to support the show. And that's about it. Uh, So I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I'm ready to get into it. Last episode of 2023. Mike, welcome. Um, You know, I was thinking about how I wanted to, how I wanted to like kind of segue into this, Mike. And I just realized like, we think we've done this like every year for like the past three years it's almost like like kind of like become like a christmas tradition yeah it's definitely a tradition i want to thank you for having me on and happy to be here of course i always love chatting with you for however long an hour or two hours and yeah it's always yeah. a good time yeah there's no no time limit tonight we're gonna we're just gonna roll with it off the cuff nice as they say Sounds nah, good to me. just kidding i got i always i've always got a list of questions lined up um <laughs> i i was it's funny because the last couple of guests I've had, I've kind of just, I've had like Canadians on nonstop and I I don't know what it is. Like you guys up in Canada really have the, um, you've got the amphibian hobby on lock. Oh, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> we, we do have some stuff that, that are, uh, I guess, less common. I mean, certainly less common here in Canada where, where like the histos and stuff like that, which I know we'll touch on later where did a few big imports from Tesoro, so now we got a, a good uh, stock load of those. But we're severely lacking in the Pumilio department, so that'll be 
a, a goal eventually to bring some more of those in at some point. Don't know when that'll happen. <laughs> you know, we can actually we can actually start off with that because that was kind of where I think you and I left off last year. You had just yep. gotten an import from Tesoros. I think you, you and Alec Brown and a couple other people, I believe, split up um, the import into Canada. And um, the, the Histos, I think it was, you had Fuego, right? Which I think was like the only Fuego in Canada up until now, right? I mean, you're the only person who had them. Yeah, that's correct. They, there was another import from Tesoros in like 2014, I believe. Uh, but the Fuego wasn't really a thing at that point. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm the first one to keep them in Canada, as far as I know. <laughs> so catch us up a little bit. I, I remember when we talked about it, you had just kind of gotten them. You were kind of working on some, I guess, acclimating them. Maybe would be the word that I'm looking for. And I think yep. you had just kind of walk us through what you what you started off with. You know, if you had a pair, you had a trio, and how you acclimated them, and how they've kind of adapted, and have they produced at all? And basically, tell us what's you know, give us an update on what happened since last year. Sure. Yeah. Um, the Fuego have acclimated pretty well. Um, I kept them in bins for longer than I would like to admit, <laughs> um, but I was working on the big 110 gallon vivarium. And uh, now, since that time, I found out that I had two males and one female. So they we bought them as unsexed, um, but there were some... We were supposed to get them spring, and then there were some delays with CITES. And then summertime hit, and it was like 40 degrees Celsius. So, I don't know, probably uh, 95, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere around there. And uh, we just didn't feel safe having them out on the tarmac for that long. So uh, it ended up getting delayed until October um, 2022. And then um, now they, they've acclimated well. They're in their tank. And we ended up getting them then. At that point, they were sexable. So we, <laughs> we they kind of visually identified like they weren't calling really until a few months after I got them but they visually identified a pair for me um and it was accurate actually the female was a female and then the one was a male and the other one was unsexed it also turned out to be male um and yeah that kind of brings us up to this year where uh again a similar but slightly different group of people got together and ordered some frogs from Tesoros, uh, myself, Alec Brown, that kind of group of people came together and, and did another order. Um, I ended up getting three blue histrionica. So the other kind of dream frog that I've always wanted since I saw them back in 2014. Um, and now we're, <laughs> we're kind of in the same spot. I'm slightly further along with the tank, so it shouldn't be like six, seven months until they get moved in. But uh, yeah, the right now they're in bins, uh, like live planted bins. They're fairly naturalistic, uh, acclimating. They're doing fairly well. There is one that's definitely a little bit more timid and I won't say skinny or it's skinny, I should say, but, uh, it's definitely, it needs to eat a little bit more. So working on that right now. Yeah. I remember you, you mentioned that to me and I, you did. I think you did kind of like a little short little YouTube video where you covered 
I know one of the histos was was I think it, yeah, it was the male. I think was having a little, you know, being a little, little difficult. Yeah, the the fuego was he had a boat, probably three or no, it was a little bit longer than that. It might have been like six months in or so. Um, I was taking my trip to to Madagascar, and just before the trip. I looked in and the one of the males had like a, I guess I'll call it like an abscess, but something on his lip um, that I was pretty concerned about. Thankfully, Alec, <laughs> my good friend and also vet, um, was able to prescribe some medication. And one of the other guys that was on the import, Chris, he uh, was able to just come by and take it for the two weeks that I was gone because... Brie, <laughs> I don't think Brie wanted that resting on her shoulders if I was already putting a lot just not being here. But um, with the added stress of medicating a frog, uh, I don't think she wanted that. So I sent it off to him for a few weeks. And by the time I got back, it was completely gone. So, yeah, it, it was very successful. <laughs> yeah, some of them seem to need a little extra TLC. And, you know, the, the, the raising in bins, when I think mm-hmm. about how common it how common it really is like how often people do it and really how effective of a strategy it it really is it's funny because when you think about the way the outside world perceives the amphibian hobby especially the dwarf frog hobby it's just such a visual thing and the idea of keeping an animal not in this pristine clean glass enclosure it just i guess it seems unusual to some people and i've i've had conversations with people i'm like look that there's nothing wrong with the bin. In fact, it's honestly better in certain situations because you're obstructing the view. It's a little bit, it's opaque. Um, I mean, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause like, I, I'm like you, I, I agree with bins when they're necessary, especially when you're dealing with an animal, it's a little tricky. Like what, what are your, like, do you have any tips or tricks? So like what, what would tell you, all right, maybe I should move this animal into a bin or maybe I should keep it in a bin for a while. Um, I mean, like I said, in my case, it was, it was mostly just, I didn't have the tank done. Um, so it was kind of my only option at the time. And to a certain degree, I do agree with, you know, they should be kept in vivariums and this and that. But like you said, like the bin really creates like a really great habitat for them because you don't have to worry as much about, uh, humidity escaping. It's a much more constant, stable area for them. Like you mentioned, it obstructs their view, so they do tend to be uh, easier to raise, I'll say, in bins, uh, especially when bringing in a fresh import. Uh, I know there are people that definitely just throw them right in their tanks, but to me, I would rather just keep an eye on them and make sure, A, for me, it was kind of a twofold thing. Like The first point was I wanted to sex them before I put them in the large bin, so I was hoping that they would start calling or start laying eggs or something like that so I could see uh, and B, it was just to monitor each one individually. You know, if I had a, whatever, an 18, 18, 24 or something built for them and just threw them right in there, there's nothing holding them back from hiding constantly and, uh, you know, just being out of sight all the time, which, you know, to me, especially in my brain, like, unfortunately, a lot of times out of sight, out of mind, obviously it was something that important. I'm sure I would have maintained it just fine. But I think the main point is that it just facilitates an easier habitat to maintain them in 
and it's just more stable over time. Like, especially because they weren't hooked up to a Miss King or anything, you know, I'd only have to miss them once every day or once even every other day. And it would still maintain like the droplets on the wall and a higher humidity. So my bins aren't standard, I guess. Um, like I use a, I guess a soldering iron, but like with kind of a modified tip and it just makes like a blade. So what I actually do is cut the bins with this blade in like a rectangle of X size, like mine are probably like one and a half by three inches long. And then they're metal screens. So what I do is rather than hot gluing them or whatever, I actually flip the bin over and I burn it into the plastic itself. So then that way there's no sharp edges. There's no worry that, you know, a frog will get caught on it or anything like that. Um, and specifically in my case, like if you're keeping crickets or putting crickets in there, um, they can't chew through it. So it's it's a little bit different than probably what most people are picturing. Like I do one on each kind of length end of the bin and then one on the top. So there's some sort of cross flow as well as ventilation out the top so that the air can kind of pass through and escape. And we, like Troy and so many other keepers, have a fan in our room as well. So that helps circulate the air a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I do have a video on my channel kind of showing the bin that I made for my Cruiser Hilo when I first got them. And realistically, I probably should remake that video, but I think it was kind of a good starting point for a lot of people to emulate that where, you know, it's basically a vivarium inside a bin, like a, a micro scale vivarium, essentially. Yeah, my old, I've done both. I, I raised some some orange blackfoots out in a bin and then I, I actually I moved them into a tank maybe like two months ago and my only qualm with the bin was the fruit fly escapes because i did something similar i did um i used a dremel and i just had a really fine like diamond bit on the end and i just made some really really small holes on the sides and on the top to get some ventilation and the fruit flies like the the, the melanogaster were I mean, there's limits to how small you can make those holes, and they they were like everywhere. So that was my big criticism with that. Um, yeah, I use the gasket bins, and then like like I kind of outlined there, I use the uh, screen, and that because it's such a perfect seal, like it's literally burned into the plastic. Then there's there's zero escapees. We have some really really fine. Uh, metal mesh uh, that we actually use on like our springtail bins even and they don't get out so it's it's a very fine screen you know one thing i've noticed is like i i keep screen tops i've had i have screen tops i've had for like 30 years and i've actually noticed that the screen top ventilation has gotten coarser as time goes by because i've actually got a couple of tanks that i just use the old aquarium screen and it's actually so fine that melanogaster won't get out but the newer mm -hmm. stuff is like it's crazy. You have to modify it. Even like the, like some of the front opening tanks, it's it it cuts it close sometimes. But I guess I, I mean I'm looking at them and actually I guess it's not that bad. But I don't know. It's just it's hard to mod. I found with a lot of front opening tanks, a lot of time for me at least, it's not that they escape through the screen. It's that typically towards like the the I guess opening mechanism, like where the joint is in the in the glass. A lot of times that 
difference or that gap between the glass and the door is the point where the fruit flies escape. Um, I, I definitely have run into that, and I still have issues with that on all my tanks, really. But you know, <laughs> a lot of the animals I keep eat their fruit flies pretty quickly, so I don't have to worry about it too much. I just watch in horror when I dump. Yeah, you know, I'll dust my flies in a deli cup and I'll dump them in. And I just watch in horror as like they form a little army and go right up the vertical side of the tank, right to the top. Yep. And it's like, <laughs> okay, boys, you got like thirty seconds to knock these things out before they're all over my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You watch in horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's always fun watching them. Thankfully, a lot of the like lizards and stuff, um, are able to get them whether they're jumping for them or whatever because the the little lizards that i keep don't have like sticky toes like geckos so they just kind of launch themselves off the branches and manage to maintain them pretty well thankfully <laughs> yeah what's the I, refresh my memory the little green lizards that you've got they're kind of like they well they're not but they behave like little monitors what, refresh my memory where are they again yeah, they're uh, Tachydromus is a genus, and then I have two species. I have the Smargdenus, which are referred to as, like, the green or the emerald grass lizard. And then I have the Tachydromus dorsalis, which is called the uh, Sakashima grass lizard. And you keep them, like, not like a dar frog, but you, you still keep them in, like, a planted, kind of, like, dense type of, of enclosure, right? Yeah, yeah, they... the. The dorsalis tend to be more kind of tree dwellers, like they're slightly larger and they love to hang out. Like I have a couple ficuses planted in their tank and the ficus obviously grows straight to the top and then kind of branches out from there. And like the branches press against the screen and every single night they sleep on those branches. Um, and then the smargdenus tend to be kind of lower towards the ground. Um, but even still, I have like a few grass species in there and then I have a ficus, I think it's Maricopa maybe something like that. It's just a slightly different shape, uh, leaf shaped ficus that I keep in there. And that, that thing needs to be hacked back here pretty soon. But, um, yeah, they, they love it. They love spending time in there. Yeah. I've seen a few of your videos. I just, I love watching those things. They're just like just watching their little minds go, you like, like frogs really don't, they're not cerebral, but certain lizards you look and you can see that there's something actually going on in their minds. Oh yeah. Like they, they know when I walk around with the fruit fly cup or I guess sometimes small crickets, like just a feeding cup and they'll be all racing at the front of the glass, ready for me to drop them in. And when, when I keep several in the same tank and like I have the eight by 12 exos and they only have one door. So feeding them can be kind of a challenge because they're very social. Like they, they'll come out and kind of lick my finger and hop on my hand and that kind of stuff. And that's always scary when you're trying to feed them and they're all running against the front. It's like, okay, everybody needs to chill out for a second here. I'm going to dump in some food and slam your door shut. <laughs> like nobody's leaving this tank. Yeah. They flash mob you. So, I mean, while we're on tanks, I know you mentioned Pamilio before and um, I want to talk about Pamilio, but first I want to talk about the, really big vivarium you made was about i think you put a video about a month ago right the 110 gallon tank yep walk us walk us through that i mean from the ground up how did you decide on the concept building it stocking it just walk us through the whole process yeah so i've always had like a a vision 
that I would have kind of either one or a couple large vivariums in the room uh, that basically take up all of one rack, like one row on our six foot long rack. So I figured this was kind of the perfect opportunity for that. And uh, so I went to designing. So I basically just took the spot where I was going to put them. I divided it into two and I made my own custom tanks for them. So I basically just designed them to fit in between the two, like the front and the back, I guess, horizontal shelf. Um, so they're not sitting all unevenly on like the front beam and the back beam. Um, so they're 22 inches deep. And then the distance like that the shelf runs is, I guess, 66 inches. So I designed them to be 33 inches per tank. Uh, they're basically a 33-inch square. They're 33 inches long or wide, I guess. And then 33, and I think a half inches tall because I didn't account for the, the glass thickness on the top and the bottom. Not that it really mattered. That was pretty flexible. Um, and so I you know, took them to a local glass shop, got the glass made or cut, I guess. And then, yeah, just ended up putting it together and doing the whole background method. I drilled my own glass. I found these really cool kind of suction cup. Like I know a lot of people use either just a garden hose like in their backyard and have the water running when they're drilling holes or uh, use like, uh, I think it's plumber's putty people use. But I saw one video of a guy cutting glass and it's basically a red ring that you just like press onto the glass and it has like a natural suction suction to it. And then you just fill the little hole with water and you go nuts. <laughs> so it, uh, it minimizes the amount of, I guess, mess, especially when doing it indoors. And it, it just makes it really, really easy. For this new tank, I designed a jig just out of a little PVC. So I had the, the issue where the drill bit still has room to kind of skip around a little bit. And I had an issue where the back where I drilled was kind of skipped around a little too much and made the hole not perfectly sealable. So um, I kind of troubleshooted that by uh, making this little jig. And if anybody out there doesn't know what that means, basically just like a kind of a guide. So essentially I have that red puck that I squished to the glass. I put this little chunk of PVC in there that I drilled a hole for in it for the, uh, I think it's five eighths inch is the misking nozzle slash bulkhead uh, diameter. And yeah, so far it's worked pretty well. Uh, I'm going to put it to the real test when I end up drilling this tank. That'll be in the next probably, well, hopefully a few days, but uh, it might end up being about a week until I get to there. Uh, and then after that, um, I did the Sherman style uh, uh, vent, I guess. So for people that might not know what that means, uh, there's like the German style that have kind of the whole front with like a vertical or a horizontal piece of glass to hold the tracking. But the problem with that is you lose whatever the distance, like whatever gap you're using for front ventilation, you lose that in the tank. The nice thing about the Sherman style is that the glass, the front glass comes right to the very front. And then there's two one inch uh, diameter, or I guess like front to back, one inch thick uh, pieces of glass that 
make for the gap in the uh, where you'd like you'd put like the ventilation. And so you keep all those all, like surface area, I suppose, in the front of the tank. Um, so that was one design I changed from the other other previous tanks that I've built. And I love it. Like it, it makes it so that the water, we all have those plants that grow a little too close to the front front of the glass. And then when you're misting, it tends to drip and it goes right through the, the German style tank and lands outside of the tank, essentially. Whereas this, it catches all that and it doesn't actually end up leaking. So those were a few of the design changes I made. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is there, <laughs> I can keep walking through it, but basically we tried the new method of, uh, that Sharif does the plenty of, or a bunch of tanks on Instagram. He does like a cork kind of carving. And I, I did that for that tank. And I actually do have some featherstone. So it's like basically a very porous rock that keeps humidity really well in the tank. And I actually did experiment using that in one of my Pumilio tanks. Uh, I, ha I didn't really trust myself to try a new method with the Histrionica because I really didn't want to mess anything up. But I might end up incorporating a few of those rocks in the new tank just because I think it adds a really nice aesthetic to the tank, seeing something other than just wood and plants. Um, and it also benefits like the humidity retention in the tank. So, yeah. Where did you source the cork? Because it looks like um, almost I almost use it like for acoustics for like soundproofing. Because you didn't yeah, use, so you it's did... actually insulation. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that was probably the most asked question, and unfortunately, the place I buy it from, you can only buy it in bulk. So I provide it like locally here to anybody who wants it, and then uh, I guess I could ship in theory all the way across Canada if people were interested, but. Um, yeah, there's there's a few places. I <laughs> it's very hard to find. It took me a long time, so I like making people either just you know buy it for me or go ahead and do the research. I had a, somebody reach out, and they're like a reseller, like they they have kind of a retail store, and I was like, bro, I'm not <laughs> I'm not here to make you make money. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> I was like, if I found it, you can find it. Like, just just search a little bit. Yeah, I, I've seen, I mean, I've seen it in, in real life and I've seen it in like studio, like studio recording areas or like places where it's yep. soundproof, just, just like you said, but I never really gave much thought to actually carving it. Like I've seen how Sharif does it. I, I, I got, I got to talk to Sharif about how it's done, but like, what was, what was it like carving it and, you know, getting it the way you wanted to, as opposed to like other materials, like the, like the polyurethane foam or just doing like, um, like, um, you know, just like cork bark and wood, like silicone to the back. Or like, what was, what was it like working with this material as opposed to other background materials? Um, for me, to be honest, I think it's probably my favorite method with just the result that it gives. Uh, you can use a few different things. I know Troy did his typical wire wheel and a drill method, and that works really well for carving it very quickly. Although just for the, the viewers and listeners out there, it is so messy. It is so messy. Like, uh, I had a little mask on for most of the time and then some safety glasses as well. But truthfully, a respirator would probably be recommended just having some good filters in there because it is horrifyingly 
dirty and sticks to everything. Like the drill, when I put it, pulled it out of the tank, it was no longer a drill. It, there was no color left to it. It was all completely caked in a good layer of the cork powder, I guess, at that point. Um, and then the other way Sharif does it is using just a screwdriver. And that works really well for getting kind of more like fine detail work, I guess. Like if you're going to carve something specific, like, um, oh, that little chunk here doesn't look right. Or, you know, it gives you a more chunky effect to it because it really rips out the little tiny pieces of cork more or less one at a time. And it gives you a more blocked effect, whereas the drill bit sands it, I would say, and uh, gives you kind of a smoother, uh, more uniform look to it. So those are the two methods that I've seen. Uh, frankly, I've heard people use like forks and stuff, but I don't think a fork would hold up very well to the constant uh, arm workout that involves scraping a fork across a background for hours and hours on end. Like I know for mine, I carved kind of the middle of summer and it took me to get it the way I want it, like almost two days of carving. And that was mostly with the screwdriver. Um, if you just want to kind of set it and forget it, the drill bit is the way to go because you get nice carved look, nice sanded look, I suppose. And it, it it does it really fast. Like you could probably do a full background in... I don't know, an hour or less, but I just wanted some more details put into mine. And frankly, I didn't want to make that much mess. <laughs> you know what works? I don't know if you, if you did this or not, but if you use a shop vac with a HEPA filter on it, and as you're, like, if, like with the foam, if you're using the wire wheel or if you're scraping it, you just keep the, um, like, you know, you go to the dentist and you get a tooth drill and the dental assistant will just put that little vacuum in your mouth. If you just like yeah. vacuum as you go, it's, I mean, it's still like a horrible mess, but it's, it's easier to, it's easier to control, you know, the outflow if you're kind of vacuuming it as you go, but that stuff just, yeah, that would make everything. sense. Yeah. For, for video and stuff, I just didn't want to use the vacuum cause it's so cumbersome, but for anybody at home doing it, yeah, I would strongly recommend kind of holding the vacuum right next to the drill and doing it that way. Cause truthfully you could get through it in probably an hour or less. So that would be maybe I'll try that for the next one and see how it goes. <laughs> I, I like my favorite thing in the world is I bought this little shop vac. It's like maybe like a five gallon shop vac because I actually bought it because of the spider problem. So, yep. <laughs> I mean, you know, just as probably better than I, you probably have more, but like anything with fruit flies, you get spiders like crazy and it's just such a nuisance. And I got tired of it and I was like, all right, well, my wife's not gonna let me use the house vacuum for this. So I bought my own on Amazon for like, I think it was like a hundred bucks. It's the best it's the best investment I've made all year. It's just, it gets oh, yeah. in between the tanks and I can get up under the lights and everything. It just, it just makes it like so much less miserable down here with the, having the vac. And it's not like a regular vacuum. You can, you can vacuum up a sock with it and it doesn't, you know, it, 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 it still works. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't uh, skip a beat or anything. Yeah. Those are honestly one of the, a frogger or a reptile keepers dream is having a good shop vac and, just being able to vacuum all the little nooks and crannies that you might not be able to access with a typical corded or whatever big tube hose vacuum. Yeah. It was like my Martha Stewart moment. I was like, this is great. I'm so happy with this. <laughs> <laughs> 
but the, the tank looks great. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I watched the video and, and your, vid, your videos are, I, I love watching your videos, your production, everything is just so good. And Thank you. I mean, the, the, the background looks great. Uh, plant choices. Like you went with some big bromeliads. Can you maybe run us through some of the plant species and why you chose them and like how you decided where you want to place them in the tank? Yeah. Um, I wasn't super, like, I'm still not super happy with the planting. There are some definitely large plants in there that I will have to take out. Like, I have a big El Choco Red, and it just threw out a new leaf that's probably, oh, man, I don't know, 9 to 10 inches in diameter. So I knew that would need to be removed at some point and more specifically placed. Like, I'll probably build a spot specifically for it in the new build. Um but the the bromeliads and stuff that I chose, I had lying around for quite some time. I think it's the kind of white one that's in there is a Vresia Nova, I want to say. Um, and then I have a couple of Vresia Splendens as well that will also get pretty big. But uh, I just wanted as big Phytotelma, so like the plant pools uh, at the bottom of the bromeliads as I possibly could because I knew that they'd be raising them in there. And then I also have the Vresia. Oh man, this is the one Troy uses all the time. I don't have the plant list right in front of me, but um, Hieroglyphica maybe? Something like that? I can't remember. But um, it's doing really well. And yeah, I'd, I'd basically just try and use my, I guess, <laughs> two decades worth of reptile keeping and, you know, about a decade of frog keeping and planting vivariums and such just to my advantage and finding little nooks and crannies that'll grow different things. And it really is just an experiment. Like sometimes they don't grow well in one place, so you move them and put them somewhere else and then they grow really well. Um, that was the story with a couple of different plants in there. I know in the video I have the... Um, Oh man, what's it? It's like an African violet uh, growing in the top right hand corner. And I think in the video, it's actually flowering too. But shortly after that, because there was no substrate behind it, it started to decline. And so Brie was like, You're going to, you got to move that thing. Otherwise, you know, it's not going to live. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So I moved it to the, like the back left corner and it's now just starting to grow again and uh, it's doing very well. So. Yeah, it's all kind of an experiment, and also you're limited to what you can find. Like, I know you guys have glass box tropicals, and uh, I think it's verdant vivariums, and there's a few different really good plant distributors in in America that, unfortunately, we don't have that luxury here. Uh, we have Mark from Understory Enterprises, and he's got a lot of the cool stuff, like at the last expo. God, I don't even know how much money I spent there, but <laughs> bought a whole bunch of different cuttings and such for um, the new new build that I'm building currently. And uh, they're they're doing well right now. They're just still in their cups that they were sold to me as because the tank's not ready yet. But I knew we weren't going to have another expo before the next time. So, um, yeah, I ended up picking a bunch there. But it's, I try and make it look not overplanted i guess is kind of the the words that i'm looking for like i don't want a whole bunch of highlight big feature plants in a tank uh i i really like the way indra um technically planted vivariums i think uh on instagram 
And I really love the way he does his vivariums uh, because he plants them with a lot of different like filmy ferns and just small kind of detail plants that truthfully, most people in the hobby probably either don't care or really don't beat an eye at and pay any attention to. But for somebody like myself who loves plants as much as I do, those vivariums are just like treasure troves because they don't need need to even have any frogs in them. Like I'll sit there and when I'm at his house filming and I'll film it once and I'll go back over and film it again and then a third time. And every single time I go back to it, you see some new little detail plant or a different little fern growing over here. And to me, that's just having been to Costa Rica and like different tropical rainforests that is huge. And that's how things grow in those places. It's not, you know, one or two giant philodendron uh, or anthuriums or any of those. It's a lot of small, tiny plants that kind of make a big picture, I guess. I'd love to do a floor to ceiling tank one day, like a, you know, like a, like a, maybe like a, two by two by say seven or eight and i'd love to i'd love to do that just do like a forest floor and then have i forget what all the layers are i mean like i know canopy well like you know like like um substrate you know leaf litter understory it would i don't know it'd be a fun project to get like you know create like a tree with like buttress roots and everything like that yeah yeah yeah, it's, I've seen those aesthetics not necessarily that big, like to that scale, but there are definitely a few people that make some really cool kind of 360 vivariums where they'll make like a central tree and they're not heavily planted by any means, but, you know, they have a few bromeliads on the branches and they have a lot of mosses and like climbing plants that go up the trunk. And yeah, that to me is like super aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I've seen a couple of, of I mean, off the top of my head, I can't recall, it's probably a few different people, but I can't recall one specific in person on Instagram where I've seen it off the top of my head, but some of that stuff is just, is it's it's on another level. Just, I mean, just the artists really appreciate a tree trunk and a root system, and then, you know, you have like fungi growing on the tree, like that's, that's why I like, um, the episode I did with um, Ron Rundo, um, Snake, uh, was yep. it, um he does all that stuff in epoxy and it's, in, it's nice. incredible. Yeah. He does. I don't, he doesn't do like, um, well, he kind of, he kind of does that, but he does, they're kind of sized for like everyday tanks, but he's done other stuff as well. But I gotta, I gotta ask him if he, if he's ever done something like that, like a floor to ceiling full tree trunk. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Yeah. That'd be wild. <laughs> yeah. African violet. That's another thing. I, the African violet was the first plant I ever used in a terrarium. I mean, I did it when, like, when I was a kid, and I honestly just like stuck a pot in there. It looked terrible, but um, <laughs> I, I never, I never really hear people talk. I mean, maybe it's just me. I'm sure someone's gonna like reach out to me after this era and like, oh, I've been using African violets all the time. I'm like, okay, you should have told me. But um, are you using them? Are you incorporating them regularly into tanks? Yeah, there's one specific species that stays a little bit smaller. And it looks really good in terrariums. Um, but a lot of the typical, you know, grocery store African violets are just a little too busy for me. Um, these I like a lot because they're kind of a flat green color. And then the when they bloom, they're a nice bright purple. So it really gives a nice contrast to the tank. And I think part of the 
uh, I guess, learning curve of building vivariums is kind of understanding how the plants grow and how they mature. And a lot of those African violets will end up getting fairly large leaves to them where it's like, you know, three to four inch round leaflets. And to me, that just isn't super appealing in most tanks. You know, if you had that floor to ceiling tank that that would look into scale with it, that's fine. But when you have a relatively small glass box for your animals, then um, it tends to look a little bit out of scale, in my opinion. But they do do grow. They do grow great, and you can use them in even slightly more arid setups as well. So uh, it's nice. Like I could see them being grown for things like fat tail geckos and stuff like that that like the slightly higher humidity, but don't necessarily like it like wet. So that's where I'd probably use them. The species that I kept, and again, it was probably just like a grocery store variety, and this was probably in like 1989, and I remember the, you know how like certain species of, um, is it Tillandsia? They usually, the air plants? The air plants, yeah. They have, again, I, I if anybody's listening, you're, you know, the, the, my plant people, the structures, they're almost like cilia, like hairs on the plant. You know what I'm talking about? Well, yep. the species that that I kept as a kid, it had it a lot of that on it. It was just like really like furry. And I remember one of the reasons why I put it in the tank was because it held mist so well. Like if you sprayed it with a mist, little water droplets would form all over it. And it was at the time it was recommended for species that would only drink off of leaves. Whereas like you put mm. it on like pothos, it just kind of beads up and falls right off. It was it was pretty cool yeah. actually. Yeah, they're really cool plants. Like they're very cool and. There, you can go deep down the rabbit hole of African violets. Like I know there's the three or four dollar ones you can buy at at your local grocery store or pretty much any garden center. But there's some people that really specialize in them, and you can get some pretty expensive, really cool looking ones for uh, not, I guess, not like COVID pricing like plants were during then. But you know, twenty or thirty dollars, you can get a really cool plant for them. Um, it's just not something that I've really hopped down the rabbit hole of, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be on my wish list now. Not even for an animal tank, just to just to grow some. I feel like I need something. I'm kind of tired of staring at the same plants I've got. I want to get something new. And that's, yeah, there I you think, go. I, I mean, think, yeah, that's rabbit easy hole to grow in the home too, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, they look nice. Um, so, uh, Pamilio in the hobby in Canada. Because, like, I mean, down here, Pamilio is, there's, I don't even, I can't even begin to count how many different locales and morphs of Pamilio are available here. You mentioned earlier that Canada needs to kind of get more Pamilio up there. What, what do you guys have available in Canada now, and what, what would you be looking to incorporate into what's locally available in Canada? We have a lot of pretty weird ones available in Canada, um, like... Like the Almirante is one that is very, very common. Um, we do have a few people that have and have produced the Rio Calubre. Um, the Punta Laurel are fairly available. Um, and then down like the more kind of rare, you don't see it as often, is like even Basties are fairly uncommon here. <laughs> uh, there are a few producers of them in, around Canada, but... In general, like maybe three or four people 
something like that, maybe five that are producing them. Um, and then a lot of the new, like Drago Colognes and all those just aren't here like at all. Um, there's, there's a whole list of them that aren't here period. Um, I have a buddy that produces the, um, oh man, blanking on the name. Uh, like the Uyama rivers. Um, there's a few people. There's the, why am I blanking on it right now? It's yellow. Um, Oh, I hate myself that I don't remember it, but yeah, I'm not. It's not going to come back to me right away. Maybe I'll remember it in a few minutes here. But um, yeah, there's there's really not many available here in Canada. It's it's just something that we might have had at one point, and people kind of let go of, and now they're just not available at all. Uh, obviously, we do still get the occasional, you know, wild caught blue jeans and whatnot. But even blue jeans. I could maybe name like two people that are producing them. So it's, it's, it's a very strange market up here. Yeah. Blue jeans is weird. I know a couple of people who are working on getting them to be kind of captive bred here in the U S to take them. I mean, to my knowledge, I don't really think that they're in any real danger from field collection because I believe their populations are really, really stable, but I mean, it doesn't really seem to be a need to like why import them at all. You know what I mean? Considering yeah. how they a lot of them come in with parasites and beat up, and like I, I'd gotten wild caught blue jeans a, a while back, and they just they just didn't acclimate well. You know, they, they had them no. for a couple of months, and then they just didn't they just didn't hold on. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like so many people get them, and whether it's their first pumilio or whatever, because they're so much cheaper than other pumilio. They just, it, it might be even be like their first dart frog or whatever, and they get them and end up dying. Like one of one of the people I know end up messaging me and just said, hey, I got these two. And I was like, okay, well, good luck. Like, I'm sure you'll have one or zero pretty soon. And sure <laughs> enough, now he only has one. So I'm like, yeah, like it's, that's why, honestly, in my opinion, it's like the perfect case study or kind of example of, like buy captive bread. Like you don't have to spend the extra, you know, even if it's up to like a hundred bucks, like spend the extra hundred bucks and get something that you know has been produced in captivity is most likely going to do well. If you care for it, even remotely properly, why would you risk it? And, and especially there's also the risk, like you said, like of parasites and bacteria and all the other host of issues that can come in on frogs. Like why risk bringing that into your home or the pet store or wherever? It just doesn't make sense to me. And there's such a beautiful frog too. You think it would be a no brainer that they'd be popular, but it's, it's almost like they're only, they're only popular with, and, I, and I'm not trying to pigeonhole anybody, but it seems like they, it's almost like people kind of like new keepers and people who don't really quite get, the scope of what's already available tend yeah. to kind of, I mean, cause, cause they're cheap. It's almost like, well, it's only like 50 bucks, 60 bucks, whatever. It's not a, you know, a huge investment as compared to some of the other familiar that are captive bred, but it's, it's a shame. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, my opinion, I think they're one of the prettiest familiar out there. I just, I love it. The red and the blue, it's a no brainer for me. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you are. I love them. And, and if I could find a breeder, like I would love to get a group of them and produce them here, but, 
yeah, they're just they're just so hard to find. And at this point, especially with the histos, like, oof, bringing in <laughs> wild caught frogs to me is a sketchy ordeal. <laughs> what do you think about um, the koi that are going to be probably available? I think I forget exactly. Julio didn't give me a specific date, but I think within the next year. I don't know. You guys have any plans to get koi up in Canada? It, I, I haven't heard. I mean, obviously, I think they're stunning and would love to have them. Truthfully, to me, it will really depend on what they come out as price point wise. Um, as much as I would love to have them, at some point, I do need to buy a house. So, <laughs> uh, not that they're going to cost as much of a house, but you know, two grand US or four grand US or whatever that that goes a long way, especially in Canada. So. It's um, it it will be a, a tough choice, but I imagine we probably won't see them here for another few years. Um, they're definitely something that I would love to own, and and maybe that time will come eventually. But uh, I, I mean, how can you how can you deny them? Like they're arguably one of the most pretty amphibians, dare I say, like out there. So. I, I imagine it will be a hot market for them, and I'm I'm sure they'll have no problem selling them for whatever they decide to list them at. Yeah, and I I'm, I meant to say Sylvatica. I'm sorry, I said Histo. I meant to say Sylvatica. Sylvatica, yeah. Yeah, for all the you know hardcore listeners who want to. <laughs> yeah, Troy, we get it. I know, I know. It's it's Sylvatica. I, I apologize. I got in that Histo mode, but yeah, you're right. It's it's an incredible frog. Yeah, they're stunning. We're I don't think we're gonna see them when we go to Columbia next year, but I would love to. <laughs> yeah, the the region I mean Julio told me some pretty wild stories and it's kind of rough down there, so um Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know if you wanna kinda I don't know if you'd wanna just kinda casually go there. Yeah, I think you'd kinda have to work kinda work yourself up to it a bit. Oh yeah. Yeah, we're we're planning a trip for March and so it's uh a little bit more, less off the beaten path, <laughs> more easily accessible animals, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, another thing I, w- I wanted to get into is a couple of non-dart frogs that, you, that you're working with. And I know you, you know, I talked a little bit beforehand, I know you said some of these are Breeze projects, but uh, maybe whatever you can tell us to kind of give us an idea. You've got sure. rain, rain frogs from Madagascar and you've got Mexican giant tree frogs. Yeah. How did you guys end up with them and maybe just kind of run us through what you know about each species and you know what what their presence is in the hobby or Yeah, so the um I guess I'll start with the 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 Scaphiophryni or the the Madagascan rain frogs as they're called. Um we have the Marmorata, so they are kind of an eastern Madagascan uh distribution frog that typically exists in pretty dense rainforest. Um, we found them in a few different places uh, while we were down there and we ended up getting the ones here because our friend uh, was basically like, I don't want these things anymore. <laughs> and Bree was like, uh, I do. And so he ended up just giving them to us. Um, and so we have two of them now and we do hope to get, a few more like if possible but now that they're listed under excites like nobody will have them 
either being produced or even with papers. So it will be definitely a, a pretty hefty feat to actually find a pair or, or any really. Um, and then we have them currently in a 12 by 12 by 24 Exoterra. And some people might be like, why would you keep them in that? Because they're like a burrowing frog. And originally I would have agreed, but after finding them in Madagascar, um, it kind of changed my outlook on how I wanted to keep them. And that's simply because every time we found them, um, one was calling in like a rain ditch (laughs) and then all the other ones were found like three to four feet up just a straight tree branch, like a vertical, completely vertical branch. Like, like I said, like three or four feet up. So I was like, okay, well clearly these things like to climb. And I know there is some bias as to, you know, that's where we were looking. We weren't digging through the substrate to find anything, but you know, finding them fairly consistently that high up off the ground to me was like, well, Clearly, they do like to climb if given the opportunity. So I kind of implemented that in the room, and Brie ended up producing a fairly nice, uh, visually pleasing vivarium for them. And we just moved them in there uh, maybe like a week or two ago. And yeah, so far, like we saw them at the very top of the tank on the glass, like all over the place. So clearly, my hunch was at least somewhat right. <laughs> um, they're fairly easy to keep. Like we don't really keep them uh, anything different to the dart frogs. Really? Uh, we have limited ventilation with them. Uh, they do like smaller crickets. Like you'd think a frog of their size would be able to eat some larger type food. But, uh, truthfully, these guys like maybe quarter inch crickets or so. Like they, they do like them pretty small. Um, and, yeah, that's that's really all I can say about them. They're a very cool species, and I'm very happy to have them. As far as I know, there's nobody really producing them in captivity. Uh, don't hold me to that, because I don't know everybody, but certainly not in Canada is anybody producing them. Uh, and that's also true with uh, Mexican tree frogs that I mentioned earlier. Um, those are the Dachne color, is their species name. And... I guess how we got those was Mike Novi, the uh, the frog lord. <laughs> um, he uh, had them at the last Tinley we were at in 2022. And because whilst they have been reclassified, um, like scientifically, the U.S. government hasn't quite updated their species list to that. So we were still able to import them under their past name, the Pachydac or Pachymedusa, um, because those weren't restricted at all and totally easy to pass through. And even if we wanted to, um, like technically you'd need paperwork for them, but because of their classification as per the U.S. government, um, it, they were exported to Canada completely legally, all by the book. Like we didn't have to jump through any hoops or anything, and. Now we have them, um, so we're hoping to produce them, oh, probably, I won't say next year, but hopefully the year after, uh, we'd like to produce some and, and produce a clutch here. Bree really likes the, like, large frog, the, the chunky boy aesthetic, so they fit that really well, and she wanted something that wasn't quite as common as, like, white tree frogs, 
So we went with something that looks like a white tree frog and everybody mistakes it all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we have a big vivarium for them, 24 by 18 by 36. And they're they're a bundle of entertainment. I I would be lying if they haven't managed to weasel, weasel their way into my cold heart, but they certainly have. They're uh, they're pretty funny to watch and just interact with. Like you were mentioning, how amphibians typically aren't as perceptive, or you know, they're smooth brain, <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what they are. Like you can wave your hand in front of them and a solid three seconds later, they'll kind of look over at you. Like, where did it go? <laughs> like, it's very funny to watch them eat. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you had any more specific questions. Hopefully I answered that to a fulfilling degree, but <laughs> yeah, what, um, I mean, like parameter wise, lighting, temperatures, humidities, are there any parameters that you're keeping the method of work for you? Uh, so far, we've kept them with no heat or anything. Like our room stays during the day around like the mid 70s, like low to mid 70s, 73 to like 76. Um, and then we also have an Arcadia Jungle Dawn. So those do definitely produce some heat. And the Dacne Color, their tank stays typically at the top end, uh, like 80 at, at very most, like at the very top. And then towards the bottom drops to again, like basically room temperature uh and the same for the rain frogs they we found them in madagascar around the same temperatures of like 20 ish celsius which is around like that 70 degree range and they're, they're doing great so far um their substrate is a little cooler just because naturally it's fairly uh there's a, a decent amount of water in there so it stays, I haven't measured the ground yet, but I would guess like high 60s to low 70s. Um, too much more for the Scaphiophryni specifically, I would say probably isn't good for them. But I know the the tree frogs like the Dacne color can definitely handle slightly warmer temperatures. They used to be classified as a pack of Medusa, so <laughs> they used to be uh, one of those waxy monkey frogs as they were past referred to as but obviously that has changed significantly since then gotta love taxonomy <laughs> oh, you and me both <laughs> taxonomy keep up with i know it's it's something um so something just kind of came into my mind i was curious about your supplementation preferences because mm-hmm. i i have my preferences with my dart frogs and i mean everything else i kind of have a similar but different but same kind of approach like i I don't i mean i I do vitamin a with the poison frogs but i don't really do vitamin a with anything else because i i I don't know i don't know of anything beneficial or contrary so i just kind of don't incorporate it but Mm -hmm. what are your supplementation preferences for your non-dart frog amphibians for the non-dart frog um we supplement them very similar to how we supplement the uh, crickets for like the reptiles and such. We don't use any vitamin A for them. We might during breeding season, but until I see a need for it or I hear somebody mentioning they're dosing them with them, then I'm probably gonna just keep with like the calcium repash, the calcium plus by Rapashi. Um, that's typically what we use, but we, we bounce around quite a bit with calciums and such. We use like the Arcadia Earth Pro A, probably. 
once a week um, to maybe once every two weeks. And then we use the calcium, uh, man, I keep calling it calcium repashi. The repashi calcium plus uh, we use on most feedings. Um, and then in terms of like multivitamins and stuff, we typically dose them maybe twice a month or so with, with the calcium or with the uh, multivitamins. So pr- pretty similar to how you'd do it with any reptile, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're kind of on the same, the same page. I, yeah. you know what I like about the the calcium plus, and this is one of those things that I don't, maybe I'm the only person that noticed it, but it dusts very, very evenly and it doesn't cake the way yeah. other supplements do. Like you, you, you know, you, I, I dust everything in a cup and you put it in the cup and then your Apache just kind of like evenly coats everything so well. And then some of the other stuff, it, it makes, it cakes up, it makes a mess. It just doesn't, I don't, I don't know what Alan Rapashi does, but I mean, that in and of itself just makes dusting so much easier. Yeah, it does. And like the, the Arcadia brand stuff is a finer powder. So honestly, like I like how that dusts even better than the calcium plus. Um, because I do notice the calcium plus definitely has some like larger particles in it that tend to stay in the cup, at least when I'm feeding. Um, but just the, 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 yeah, like you mentioned, the powderiness of the powders is, uh, is very satisfying and coats quite evenly. Yeah. Simple things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what, that's what, that's how, you know, you're a real frogger or reptile keeper is, you're commenting on, on how nicely a calcium dust your feeder insects. <laughs> I wonder if that was even a conscientious decision that they made or that just happened to just be a coincidence. You know what I mean? I always wonder about like, when people create something and they're doing some kind of beta testing. It's like, well, it, it doesn't coat evenly, you know, or, or, or was that just a complete different, a completely random thing and I'm just making a big deal out of it. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like they'd have to because if you're if you have say like a vitamin or or even Rapashi like the calcium plus like there's so many different nutrients and minerals etc in those calciums or I guess the dusts like you'd have to have it all quite uniformly ground so that it covers or coats in a uniform way because without it then in theory you'd be missing out on whatever the like larger chunks are in your crickets or fruit flies or whatever you might be feeding. So I assume it's, it must've been thought of. That's a good, that's a good point. I didn't think of that either about the different, you know, how little certain nutrients can just weigh more than others and they might sink to the bottom as it, as it settles. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. How has it been vending at shows? Um, in recent, like this year, pretty rough, I would say. Um, I think obviously that's a very multifaceted, complex reason to why, but, um, it, it, it's constant, but slow, I would say. Like to us, we vend a lot of what we sell to the U.S. because, the Canadian market is basically ball pythons, crested geckos, leopard geckos. Like I understand that's most of the market, but when you have like the weird or expensive hog noses in our case, or like the weird niche animals, um, it's a lot more challenging to sell them in Canada just because there's not 
the population. You know, like Canada only has slightly more people than like L.A., so <laughs> there's a lot less people in Canada to market these to, whereas shipping to the States, as much as some people make it out to be hell, and for sighty species, it's very expensive and can be hell. Um, for the non sighty stuff, it's basically a $250 fee that we typically build into the price of the animal, even if we're losing some uh, on the value of the animal. We just build the shipping into that and they sell pretty quickly to the U.S., so love that. It's it's nice to be able to spread our reach, I suppose. Yeah, I, I often wonder about the the market in different parts of the world, and like kind of because like I mean, for me, it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around like not being surrounded by people. I mean, the county I, the county I live in has over a million people in it. And it's at its longest point, it's maybe like 20 miles across by maybe like 15 miles the other way. So it's just like the, it's hard for me to wrap my head around like lower population densities. That's what Canada, like I have this weird fixation with Canada. Um, But you're right. I mean, you, you raise a good point. Like you guys work with so many, I mean, so many just really like niche species that, I don't I guess it's 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 got to be hard to compete with like the bread and butter species like the ball pythons and the crested geckos and stuff like that. Can you I mean like could you vend in the like could you make efforts to come down to the US and vend here in person or would that be too much of a like a process bringing animals in and out across some um, um it it would definitely be a a very lengthy process. Um there has been or at least I have. I haven't really talked much about it with three, <laughs> but um, I, assuming we have a good like hog nose production year this year, I would consider vending like Tinley um, because it's easy to ship the animals down. Um, it, it would be fairly easy to set up a booth there, and I think that that would be a very uh, ripe market, I suppose. I'm obviously like if you're into hog noses, you know, the name Jeff Galewood or JMG reptile. He's one of the most prominent hog nose breeder, if not the most prominent hog nose breeder in, in North America. And he vends those. So there would be some stiff competition, but, uh, we do have like the person that we export our animals through. Um, his name is Nelson with tails and scales. Um, he vends Tinley, so he packs a lot of the animals up, uh, a lot of his own animals, and brings them down. So we'd probably try and work out a way to just ship them with him and then pick them up on the other side. And uh, it's a thought. <laughs> I don't know if it'll come true this year, but uh, I think it would be well worth it to to get a booth and try and vend there. Um, whether we actually got a booth would be a different thing, but... Uh, I, I think in Canada, part of the issue is, like you said, the population density. But in the GTA, like in the greater Toronto area, there's something like six million people, something like that. Um, maybe 5.5 or 6 million people in the area. So it's it's very densely packed. But, you know, that's what I guess uh, almost a third uh just shy of a third, probably like 30% or or high 20% of all of Canada's population. So there's a lot on a, there's a lot of people in very few cities across Canada. And a lot of the laws 
um, prevent Canadians from owning like hog noses specifically. Um, I know in Alberta where I used to live, they're they're outlawed there because they're native, so um, can't own them there. And then there's a few other provinces where they're basically banned. Uh, so it really narrows our scope. But it's nice to have the YouTube to be able to push people to our website or to our morph market or whatever. Um, I think that definitely does help. And I understand that not everybody has that luxury, but I'm definitely very happy that that we do. <laughs> well, you have a unique dynamic because in addition to vending and everything like that, you've got your media presence. I mean, at its very heart, your channel is... It's a channel. It's, it's it's a media presence, and you you showcase the projects that you're doing and the builds and everything like that, and you do it really well. I I really like watching your videos. Thank how, you. How has that like played out since we spoke last? Because I know you're up to like what like a hundred thousand followers on YouTube, right? Or subscribers? Excuse me, subscribers on YouTube. And Almost. Yep. <laughs> other like other other platforms and whatnot. I mean, I know that YouTube's a hard game and people tend to have this misconception that just because you're on YouTube and you're doing well by YouTube standards that it's like, you know, they just hand you a blank check every month and it's, you know, all, <laughs> it's all bells and, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I don't know. It's, sunshine it's, it, and rainbows. It's all sunshine, <laughs> and, ra- sunshine and rainbows, yeah. Um, I mean, how is the YouTube dynamic playing out? I mean, are you putting out more videos? Are you putting out different types of videos? Like, what are you looking to do with YouTube from now going on into the next year? Um, I, I would like to get back to more builds, more educational style stuff. Like for the past few years, since we moved here, I've been fairly, uh, I guess inconsistent would be the right word. Um, some months I'll go, you know, weeks and weeks without posting a video and then I'll post three in a row and then I'll go another month and then I'll go, it's very hot and cold. Um, I've been trying to get that more in check and just produce more content kind of regularly. Um, a little known thing with YouTube and, and marketing in general is that companies pay way more during November and December because of the Christmas months. So now is like the best time to make money on YouTube. So trying to pump out as much as I can both last month and this month, but uh, we are going on vacation for the end of of December here. So uh, so it's a lot of work, but uh, in the future, yeah, I'm hoping to do more care videos like the tachydromus and stuff. I've made a few videos on them and, and they seem to work. Like I have had quite a few people end up purchasing them from me. That's, that either watched the podcast that I did with uh, Armin on Dylan's podcast or um, just the YouTube videos that I share them, like the reptile room tours and stuff. I always catch flack for doing those on a monthly basis from all my friends, Troy included. Um, but to me, like it's, it's kind of my bread and butter going back to that comment. Like it's uh, a lot of regular viewers love to watch those content or that content. And I think to me, it's very beneficial because a, you know, you get to do a once over of the tanks and make sure everybody's kind of spick and span. And typically over the course of a month that, that can definitely, uh, you know, there's poop on the front glass or fog front glass or whatever. And it just, you know, is that extra drive that's like, okay, yeah, I should probably clean this. Like, (laughs) You know, it, they do poop. I do have to clean it. Um, 
that's just the cycle of keeping reptiles and so and and also the progression aspect of it like you know i can go back my channel's been on on youtube for 13 years already so i can go back 13 years to little kid mike and see what i was doing 13 years ago with uh you know a chameleon and a couple day geckos and see what it's evolved to now where it's a whole room of vivariums just seeing how like my standard of care has gone up so much and i get that a lot like a lot of people comment and say oh you know i love your room and i love all your tanks and how much time you put into it and i always try and start those videos with a disclaimer of like this is not what everybody should have (laughs) like this is a lot of animals it's not all sunshine and rainbows whether it's death or um just work like between YouTube, my full-time job, the the reptile room in general, like it's we're working every day. We get that comment all the time from Bree's parents, like, oh, you guys should come outside or whatever. And it's like, no, we can't. Like it's a weekend. We have to get as much done this weekend as we possibly can. <laughs> like we can't just go hang out outside and, you know, have a beer or two. It's it's not. It's work time. <laughs> so it's it's I, I hope that answered your question. I, I think I did. No, it, it doesn't. <laughs> feel and you, free to specify. No, no, it doesn't. You 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 bring up another angle. I, I meant to ask you was as as I followed YouTube because I I, I, really, I don't watch TV. Like most of my entertainment, I, I get off of YouTube because I can really tailor it to the stuff that I like. This the videos that I like to like. Excuse me, the videos that I like to watch, the content I enjoy. It, you know, I'm not watching like tv series or stuff like that i'm just not doing it so i'm always curious about what attracts people to certain types of content and different patterns and things that happen you know trends and whatnot and going back we'll say maybe like four years four years five years the reptile room tour thing was this huge boom and there was a lot of people doing it and some people did it well some people didn't do it very well. Some people made it more <laughs> about themselves. Some people made it, you know, less about the animals. And it, it yeah. was this interesting phenomena. And at least the way I perceived it, that has kind of mellowed out and is really not such a thing anymore. And the only people who are still really doing room tours are people like you. And it's really, really clear that it's not for everyone. And it's it's not this... Yeah thing that's that's very easily attainable without a tremendous amount of work behind it like you you do it really well um diane's room tours are great um obviously troy's room tours are great but um there's so much work that goes into it and as a creator like do you ever get feedback from people about the work that goes into this other than just you know i mean even like the editing and everything like that that goes into making the video do people ever give you feedback about the whole process and all the effort that goes into creating this final product that is the room tour? Um, not really. I mean, like I said, I get a lot of uh, feedback, we'll call it, <laughs> with a kind of negative connotation of, you know, asking why I do it every month. And to me, it's a pretty simple answer. Like, at the end of the day, it's typically my most popular video and it's one that i know my you like my subscribers like to watch and it, it does take a ton of work like i filmed ironically i filmed one on tuesday 
And my process was I got home from work at like four o'clock. I misted the reptiles, uh, did a few dishes here or there. And then I was filming for the next three hours. And like the room tours typically are only, you know, about mine are about an hour long, 45 minutes to an hour. And yeah, that's a very long video, but it, I, I like to do it in my way where I show pretty much everything. Like I know there's room tours out there that either are, you know, more, um, as you said, like the people facing where it's a lot of them talking and not so much about the animals. And I also like to be very transparent. Like in every video I'm saying, you know, this one's getting an upgrade, like hopefully this month. A lot of times it ends up not being that month, but, uh, you know, we do as much work as we possibly can to get it the way we want it. Like this room has been in the works for the better part, well, three years, and it's still not perfect. It's not dialed in. You know, we have to upgrade this or we have to move this or whatever. There's always something going on. And to me, I like to show that transparency of like, these are the tanks that I'm keeping my reptiles in. I know I used to watch room tours for or frog room tours specifically as like motivation or inspiration to make my tanks look like that. And that's what I like to think at least I provide to a lot of other people is, you know, our tanks, sure, some of them could be a little bit bigger. Um, you know, like the Chihua specifically is what I'm thinking of. Like those, yeah, If I would love for them all to be housed individually in 18 by 18 by 24 tanks, and that would be perfect. But with the animals that we have and like the constant Django that we have to do, it's just not feasible at the current moment. So eventually, when that ends up happening, that will be, you know, a major evolution or, you know, moving the t- the frogs from the bins to the to the big tanks. Like that to me is just so much progress and is so transparent that I hope people can see that and acknowledge that like that's I, I want my tank to look like that. Like, how do I do that? You know, um, whether it's a frog tank or a reptile tank, like we have live plants pretty much. Every single tank is like a a naturalistic vivarium. Like they all have live plants. They all have cleanup crews. They are all growing well. It just, that's just what, like the goal that I want to set for people. And I see people on Instagram and stuff fairly regularly saying, you know, oh, I only have a few animals. Like I can't do a room tour. It's like, well, you can. Like, just do it <laughs> or, or, or they compare themselves and they say, well, I only have eight reptiles. Like I, I wish I had more. And it's like, but do you though? Like you look like you're caring for these pretty well. If you get two to three more large enclosures, do you think you'll be able to provide that? If you can, by all means go for it. If you can't, don't like that shouldn't be your goal. And that's why I put that disclaimer that I mentioned, like, it's a shitload of work. Sorry, I don't I don't know if I can say that, but <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> I'll let I'll let you get I'll let you get I'll give you a pass. Okay. <laughs> like it is it is a lot of work. And I and people don't see it, right? Like all my friends who come over and see the room in real life, like they're shocked. They're like, holy smokes, this is 
so much cooler than I thought it was. Even on the room tours, you know, like you really do keep the tanks like this for most of the time. And I get the comment all the time, like even a few times Brie gets messages on Instagram, like, how do you keep your glass so clean? And she just replies, get yourself a mic. (laughs) That's what I do. I keep glass nice and clean. (laughs) So I, and then I know you touched on like the editing and stuff. Like you got to think if there's two hours of footage and I'm cutting it down to one hour, like I'm watching at least two hours of footage. So you mentioned that you want to get this podcast edited and stuff pretty quickly. And that's my goal as well. Like the reptile room tour, I would like to post either Friday tomorrow as we're speaking or like this weekend. So I will probably spend five or six hours editing tonight. And that's just, it is what it is. <laughs> that's what I do to myself. What, which software program are you using to edit your video? Uh, I use final cut. See, I've never been, see, here's my thing, like, part part of the, like, my little brand or whatever you want to call it, I've always kind of prided on being audio only, and I, I think I released, like, three, like, YouTube shorts, just, just to say that I did it, and really, that wasn't, you know, wasn't anything spectacular, it was maybe, like, 30 seconds of a frog or something like that, and yep. I started thinking about, I mean, like, for, for me, there really isn't necessarily any benefit for me to necessarily to do this on youtube because it would i mean it would be so much more work for me to have to edit video in addition to audio so uh, but like i'm curious as to how like when you when you record your your um your your room towards whatever else do you have to record do you have to deal with the audio and the video together or do you edit them separately Um, I do it mostly on camera. Like I mostly have a microphone pointing at myself and I'm talking live. Um, I know Troy does it the other way where he takes all the video and then voiceovers it. Um, I, that's how I do it. Uh, I know in most of my videos, I do end up voiceovering quite a lot. Um, that's just how I like doing it because I think I can kind of easily explain things, you know, when I'm, cutting cork with a saw or whatever like nobody really wants to hear me away with the dremel for half an hour but if i can just talk over it and show it whilst i'm talking over it then you know you get some music you got my voice rather than the annoyance of a drill or a saw going off the whole time um and for you specifically, this probably won't apply to both people, but um, I know like Adobe Premiere recently came out with like an editing, like an AI editing feature that basically edits a podcast like for you. Like it takes multiple camera angles. It takes a voice track and you set a few different things here, there, and you click go and it edits it very, very well. So it's definitely something to look into if you're looking into you know, making it a, a video podcast. Is that something I consider? I, I mean, the other reason I don't, not really necessarily interested in doing video is just because it's, you know, my house can be a little chaotic. So I like the yeah. fact that it's, if there's a, if there's a, a, a hiccup with the audio, like last time when you, when you and I recorded last year, there was some issues with the audio and we were able to start and stop and start and stop. And I started yeah. thinking like, if this is a video and then there was the, the year before that, uh, remember my, my my wife texted me that my dog swallowed something, and yeah, I had to I, st- I had to stop and I had to take him to the the emergency vet. 
So just yeah. like the, the chaos of filming, it, it's like, for me, it just adds another dynamic that like, I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to take on unless it was like a, like a one and done type of video, but I really don't know what, what I would want to do. Like if I was going to do a YouTube video, I don't know if I would necessarily want to do something that was like a podcast episode. I think it would rather be something that would kind of stand alone in and of itself, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, something to think about. <laughs> like, when, like, what do you, what do you think draws somebody to a video? Like, with, I mean, you you kind of you're kind of consistent with what you do in room tours and feeding tours and whatnot. What, in your experience, attracts people to those videos? Like, what what draws them in? I, honestly, if I knew, I'd be a much bigger YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> like I, I use somebody like Dion as a very good, um, representation of what I like in YouTube videos. Um, he, he very much highlights very cool species. He makes them very personable and he makes them part of his, like, it's not a vlog really by any means, but it's a more personal story than, you know, just sharing X, Y, Z animal. It's, oh yeah, you know, this one, um, we're, we're tong feeding it or trying to get it to tong feed and then giving updates on things and, and really hooking people with the charisma of what you own is something that I think is an art and he's done very well with it. Um, obviously in my case, like the room tours are a big driver. And, and I think like, I'd be lying if I said that, excuse me, you know, that number of, you know, 130-ish, that's typically what we sit at, um, reptiles, like, th that's a big number, and, and I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think people saw that number and were like, what the heck, and, like, clicked on it for that, like, holy crap, I have two lizards, how does this guy have a hundred, like, that kind of deal, and by no means is that a, the largest collection, or really even remotely close to, the the most amount of reptiles in in somebody's care um but that that's kind of our peak more or less like when baby season comes um it, it's <laughs> it hit hard uh brie is mostly responsible for the hog noses and such and like our first year producing them she was spending gosh i don't know just just because of the difficulty of getting them to eat regularly with 30 babies she was probably spending like five hours every five days basically feeding them trying to get them to eat like begging them to eat <laughs> uh it was it was hard and it's a lot of work so i i think that people kind of see that number and are like whoa and, and click that uh my other videos typically i mean like anybody can see if they watch the channel typically don't do as well uh, unless it's like a build video or something like that. And in that case, I think it's just, you know, I, I like to watch build videos as well because you never know what little tiny tip you didn't know and it comes up in the video and all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, like I'm going to use this. That's what I watch them for. And and also inspiration of like, you know, you see a really nice thumbnail like the the vivarium one that I just did and like, come on. <laughs> You know, who who in the reptile hobby or amphibian hobby wouldn't want to see how that was built? Like, in, in my opinion, um, at least that's the goal. And then obviously editing style and stuff comes into it. YouTube has changed a lot 
in the past few years since the kind of TikTok era has emerged where a, a good YouTube video, you know, you have a very good hook at the beginning and it's very quick, fast, choppy editing style. And I typically don't like that as much. I try and do it a little bit, but it's not something that I really cater my content to because over the years, I think I've kind of fostered that community of people that like see my love for the animals and and the the details that we put into the terrariums and such and come for that more so than you know a 90 foot burmese anaconda is consuming a mammoth like that's not the kind of content that i'm going to produce ever so (laughs) i i love your uh your thumbnails though they're so (laughs) the face you know like the the um the, like shocked face that shocked face is so fun i'm like a lot of times i'm looking i'm like what did he put i'm like oh my god the thumbnail is priceless that is just so funny yeah um and i try and do that with the like i don't know if you've noticed on the past few reptile room tours like i'll edit myself in some stupid position or yeah. uh like a lot of work goes into that i mean just shooting those thumbnails is I don't know, call it half an hour. And then the editing and Photoshop and stuff required is another couple hours. Like it's not a simple task necessarily to make a, a good thumbnail. I mean, the vivarium ones are nice. Cause it's, if you get a good picture of the vivarium, you know, you can get yourself in there somehow or not. Like you really don't need your face on those ones. And it, it seems to work pretty well, but yeah, those, the shocked face and the, like, ooh, what's that face? Like, that kind of deal are uh, a lot of fun and definitely quite cringy as well. The the feeding time video that you released, it looks like five months ago, um, you've got the... What, what's, the, what's the name of the turtle that you keep again? The... Um, the Geomita Spangler. Yes, 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 the, the Spangler eye. The, 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 the thumbnail is absolutely hysterical. You've got this cricket on a tongue, and the Spangler eye is like you know, its mouth is like gaping open. And then there's like, it's, it's just such a funny photo. I, I, but like, that's a good, that's engagement, you know, getting people to getting someone's attention is just like, that's the hardest part is like hooking somebody in. Like once you hook somebody in, you can keep that, you can retain that person. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's nice to see like the, uh, CTR or click through rate, like it gives you on YouTube and, um, Typically, those thumbnails do better than others, and it's it, the behind the scenes of YouTube and running one successfully is pretty gnarly, uh, and it can definitely get you into the weeds. But if people are listening to this and are considering making YouTube videos, like I encourage everybody. I mean, Troy was one of the people that had made YouTube videos, and when we started playing Fortnite together, it was like, dude, you have to make more videos. Like, come on. I want more so other people do too. And and then he started, and sure enough, he went from like 3,000 subscribers to like 30,000 over the next couple of years. And it was like, that's awesome. Like, I, I love to see that. And I think for somebody like Troy, like anybody who has a passion for what they do, show it like why not worst case you know what yeah it it is a lot of work and there is a lot that goes into it but you don't have to do that Uh, fortunately when i started you know 13 years ago the the youtube market wasn't quite as saturated and i probably could have grown much faster than i did had i produced more content faster but to me it's always been um 
I guess education and kind of entertainment over everything. Like I, I don't make YouTube videos to make money. If I did, I would have stopped so long ago, <laughs> but it's just something that I've always been doing. And I started with the mindset of like the Brian Barchecks or the uh, Steve Irwins or whatever, where the goal is to educate people through entertainment. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not nearly as entertaining as either of those people, but it's something that I wanted to do when I was young. And I've always considered myself somewhat of, of, I guess, an educator. Like my parents always tried to push me to go into teaching and I never did, but I, I, you know, it was a heavy consideration when I took university and uh, that's just been kind of who I am ever since I started. So to those of you out there that are listening to this and have been debating making a YouTube channel, just do it. Worst case, you get a few videos in and you're like, yeah, this isn't for me. Best case, you you kind of foster your own little corner of the internet and you slowly grow as time goes on. Like, like I said, I've been doing this for 12 or 13 years now and I still don't have 100,000 subscribers. Like most people would have probably quit at this point of the game, but that's just not why I do it, you know? Well, I mean, even the, the, you know, the why that's one of the things that interests me is the, the psychology behind keeping. Why do we do this? Why does one person do it this way? Why does one person do it that way? Why is this one person engaged with a, a particular content for a particular species? And why is someone different? It's like, it's the, the people in the hobby and the minds that go into it. And, you know, what, you know, what, got you interested in this in the first place? Oh, it was a YouTube video or what, um, you know, what types of, of animals do you like to watch? Do you watch it specifically just for a certain species of frog? Do you watch it for the variety? Do you watch it to kind of live vicariously through someone else because it's stuff that you can't keep or whatever stuff like that fascinates me. It's just those, those dynamics yeah. behind engagement. And, you know, like you, like you said, like, you know, why is it done this way? Sometimes it's entertainment, mm -hmm. sometimes it's education, I mean, ed education and entertainment are kind of a double-edged sword because one doesn't necessarily exist in balance with the other. Yeah. So that is just, again, that's just one of those things with, you know, content creation that, that just interests me is how do people get engaged? Why do they stay? Why do they leave? And what's going through their heads while they're, you know, while they're engaging your content? Yeah, like I get comments all the time of you know i i don't keep x or y species but i love this video and and that's like my first question to them back because i i do reply to every comment that i get like you know why like why are you watching this and and you do get the answer of oh you know i just like your videos and i like to support or whatever and then you see the like well you know i i whatever we me and my husband moved away and we're not able to keep any of this anymore et cetera et cetera and those are the kind of comments that I'm like, genuinely, thank you for commenting. Like, I I greatly appreciate this kind of feedback, and that's why I do it. And, like, I think now, back, and, and <laughs> I was reminiscing with some friends uh, a few weeks ago, and, like, my life would be very, very, very different if I didn't start producing photos, content, videos, et cetera, over the years. Like... I met my girlfriend through Instagram because she wanted she wanted to know about my planted fish tank. 
I have made connections I, like the Animal Con and Brian, excuse me, Brian Barchek. Like I went and built the Reptarium with him. Like most, if not all my friends, especially out here in Ontario, are all because I am in this hobby and whether it's selling or YouTube or whatever, like most of my closest friends started off as like YouTube subscribers. And then, you know, we, when I moved out here, we started vending the expos and there were customers there. And now there are some of my best friends that come over to our house and hang out, drink beers and hang and, and just chill. And that kind of reminiscing is just so strange and like weird to think about like what would my life have looked like if 14 year old mike decided not to make that video like what and stick with it like what could have happened otherwise and and where i am now is so uh like i'm so thankful just to have the friends that i have the connections that i've made over the years the the opportunities that have opened up for me personally in doing this and keeping that. And I understand that, you know, nowadays, you know, oh, I want to be a content creator. Like as the years went on, like my dad heard that more because he was a teacher and it just has gotten to such a place where it's like, I, I just want to, you know, make X, Y, or Z and make a living off it. And that, that wasn't a thing when I started it. Like there was not a YouTube monetary program when I started, it truly was education. And I vividly remember me just having a thought, like, wouldn't it be cool if somebody watched this video and learned something from it or, you know, found a new species that they had never heard of before and wanted to keep that, et cetera. Like it just snowballed from there. But that that's why I started. It wasn't to make money or, you know, to to be some popular celebrity, not saying that I am by any means, but you know, every every reptile expo, you'll have a handful of people that come up and know who you are and want a picture and, you know, they share, oh, you know, I started, I I just got my first ball python or whatever. And, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm kind of notorious for uh, jokingly and sometimes not so jokingly hating on ball pythons and bearded dragons and such. But at the end of the day, whatever you want to keep is whatever you want to keep. Like, I I love beardies. I love ball pythons. I, I'll never own them, but I, I recognize their place in our hobby. And I see that, you know, that's a lot of people's first animals are, are those leopard geckos, bearded dragons, etc. So yeah, like that, that to me is just so crazy to reminisce on and think about. And, you know, if, if little kid Mike didn't have that thought, where, where would I be now? I, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. And uh, you're right. It's you kind of, in, you'll have a moment of clarity where you think you, th you think about where you are and you look around and you say, all right, well, this is where I put myself. How did this, how did it come to this? You know what I mean? Like five years ago, yeah. I, I never would have, I mean, I'm a pretty quiet person. I'm not really like active online or anything like that, but I mean, I never would have gotten to know any of these people that I've had on the show as, as guests and people that I've had reach out to me as listeners and people who just enjoy the show. I mean, it's just, it's very, very gratifying. And 
for Frank, for me, like I'm not, this is not a money making thing for me. It's, it's not, I, I yeah. make like peanuts. I, 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 I swear like it's, it's podcasting is not where it, not where it's at. Um, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, but you're right. It's, it's a gratifying feeling. You know, you run into somebody, Hey, I like the show or, you know, or my favorite is like when I meet someone for the first time and I'll be like, you know, sometimes like I'll go to like one of the local expos and someone will be there. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I have a podcast. I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, and, you know, I'll give them like a free sticker or something like that. And it's just, it's nice to have a positive effect. And it's just nice knowing that you, you're in a good place. Like you, you're, you achieved a goal. You know what I mean? You like, you think yeah. yourself, all right, like, this is what I wanted. And I worked hard and I actually got it. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of work and and podcast and YouTube channel and all that stuff. Like, it, it is a lot of work. And like, this is what <laughs> you know. Some people choose to spend their free time on the back porch, drinking whatever beverage they want to drink and hanging out and chilling and all that stuff. And we like to lock ourselves in a basement and talk to nobody, a camera on on a tripod or you know a web a microphone on a desk or whatever and Specifically, I think podcasts especially do such a good job at seeing the kind of person behind the persona. You you get to sit down with people on a weekly basis and chat with them for, you know, X amount of time, one, two, three hours, whatever it ends up being. And, and you, you just learn more about a person. You can keep up an act for, you know, a 20-minute YouTube video and have that bubbly personality and stuff. And then you shut off the camera. It's just, oh, like, oh, man, I'm done. And and I'd be lying. Like, of course, if you're going to be entertaining, you have to kind of go from, you know, a, a, a 6 or a 7 to a 10 or an 11 and just, you know, amp it up and talk more than you normally would or be more emotive than you normally would. But at the end of the day like on a podcast, you really get to see that person and you can typically tell when that person is on. And then when you get past that barrier of, you know, surface level, kind of get to know you questions into like what they love to do or what, you know, what their weekend was like. And you hear all the crazy details of, you know, if it's like a field researcher in your case, I know you've been doing more kind of uh, scientific uh, paper explorers uh, during this past year. And, and personally, as like a science background myself, I love those episodes and you get to talk to that person. You're not talking to a paper. You're not talking to somebody's camera voice. Like it's just a raw conversation with whomever might be on. Yeah. I don't like it to be overly scripted and I'm finding that like the, the thing with, the thing with, with, with podcasting is it's just, it's just like you said, it's, it's an interview and different people respond to interviews differently. Some people yeah. are, are like, I mean, you and I are friends. We've been friends for a long time now. We, you and I kind of vibe off of each other and we'll have a more casual episode. Whereas with certain scientists, researchers, they've never done this before. And it's yeah. they like more structure and whatnot. And it's a different type of, of interview. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, I always start out with, you know, tell us, you know, tell us who you are. How did you, how did you get here? Yeah. You know, where, where, where'd you start? How'd you get here? And, you know, some people have some really, really interesting backstories. And I feel like that lends itself yeah. so well to the, to the research. Like, um, I, when I interviewed Edgardo from EVAC, uh, you know, we were talking about what, you know, what was going on with the, the Adelopis Zateki and how it was kind of, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation, you know, Zateki at, at, 
I think it's I think things have improved somewhat. Um, but at the time, the situation was a ticky. Was is bad. I mean, Kittred's like right outside. You know, the the facility. It's it's everywhere down there. And someone messaged me, and um, he said, he goes, hey, you know, that was a really kind of like a depressing episode. I'm like, well, it was it was supposed to be. You know what I yeah. mean? That was the, 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 the that's the world we live in. Yeah, now. <laughs> I was like that, but like that was that was the point. Is I I want to get you thinking about what's going on. I want you to understand that, you know. I can have people come on we can talk about research and we can do that. But there's also the human element of engagement. You know, what are the effects of this? What is it, you know, how does this affect the community? How does it affect you as a person dealing with the situation? And, you know, that's, that's, that's a big part of it. And I feel like, you know, certain podcasts have a lot of like, you know, like, like flash and like this, there's a, they're very disingenuous because they don't really yeah. dig into the issue that they're supposed to be uncovered. You know, and it's like as a podcast market, it's kind of like, like I feel like YouTube kind of like boomed for a while, and now I feel like that's kind of stabling off. And all the podcasting thing, there's a lot of people that are getting into it for you know for a money grab, or yeah. you know to try and brand their product or whatever. And you can see right through it pretty quickly, you know, and people have an yep. agenda and like, I don't, I don't have that here. It's just, we're all here. We're all interested in the same thing. You know, it's like a big family. Let's all hear from, you know, everybody's, everybody's got a seat at the table. Let's hear what everybody has to say and let's listen to it and let's consider it and, you know, just, just evolve with it. Yeah. And that's, that's like, that's one of the main reasons why I love podcasts so much. Like coming from a viewer perspective is, I like I'm one of those people that really likes to get to know people very well in in a fairly short amount of time. Like I'm one of those people that digs right to the like, oh, what do you do? And then I have an issue asking, you know, what do you make? <laughs> like that kind of deal where it's very deep personal questions where people necessarily don't necessarily like to answer it. But I found like specifically, you know, I, you feel out the room, you see what kind of questions are are good and bad. And most of the people that I've just straight up asked, like that is a fascinating career. Like, do you mind me asking, what, what do you make? Like, that's typically a very taboo question, but most people, especially my age, are quite open about it and, and are fine, you know, asking or answering, even if it's just generally that question. Then, and a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you're judging me on that. It's like, no, man. Like, if you say you're making 180 grand a year, my opinion doesn't change of you. I, that might not be true of everybody, but, you know, when I ask that question, it's not to put you on a scale of, oh, man, this person doesn't make any money. It's just like, holy crap, you're doing what you love and you're making a good living at it. That is fantastic to hear and it's good to know. Like, that to me is what I like to hear. And that's what I like to see from a podcast is, is getting to know somebody better than a 10 minute YouTube video or a, even a 20 minute YouTube video. Like you, you only get so much personality in there and most of it is put on to at least some degree. And that's typically, typically what a podcast does well at. Obviously, like you mentioned, there are the other facets of, you know, researchers and stuff like that, that aren't necessarily as comfortable talking to a stranger on the internet, uh, that, you know, about details or, or more details about their life than just the paper or whatever they might be discussing. But you'd be surprised at what 
you can learn about somebody in a relatively short amount of time, assuming you connect and and have that kind of, um, I guess yeah, connection is like the right word for it. No, it's 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 very very true, and it's it's funny because sometimes I don't always know exactly what I'm going to be getting into because. Like you and I, you and I talk fairly regularly. We'll message each other, and you know, you've been on the show a bunch of times. So you and I kind of know what yeah. to expect from one another. You know, it's it's not yeah, really going to be a, a surprise. But when I'll have somebody on who I have just corresponded with through email, I don't necessarily know how. Like little things, like you know, are, is this person fast? Because I talk really fast. I'm like, is this person going to be a fast talker? Are there going to be like pauses in the conversation because sometimes people will give a very short answer and then I have to kind of, you know, prompt it with like a follow-up question. <laughs> so it, it really like runs the gambit. But in a way, it's honestly, it's kind of fun actually, kind of a challenge because like when yeah. I get somebody on the phone, I'm like, all right, you know, like we because we'll, we'll talk for a few minutes before we get started just to warm up because I don't just, I don't just hit record the second we start talking. And, yeah. um, you know, people respond to that and, and sometimes you'll hear some like really like wild stuff out of some some people that you never would have expected. You think that someone's a pretty like straight laced person, and then you get these like crazy stories about this and that happening, and it just it makes the content so much more interesting. Because I mean, like you mentioned, coming from a science background, details interest me. The way that people solve yep. problems interests me, but there's a person solving those problems, and that to me yep. is that that's the the human dynamic that makes it so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and so many researchers from academia, especially nowadays, are so bubbly and and have such a crazy story behind them that it's it's almost like a disservice to not get that kind of information out of them because they might answer a few questions and then they finally let loose and they're like, oh, okay, I'm a little more comfortable here. And then you can go a little deeper of, you know, you get stories from the field or whatever might have happened at that time. And, and like, I think especially like professors and, and students and stuff have such a kind of, I don't know, stickler persona, but most of the profs that I've interacted with on more of like a personal level are, are just that they they have that kind of wild side to them that you wouldn't expect going into the conversation and you walk out and you're like, what the heck did I just listen to? Like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some wild stories and sometimes stuff that people are doing in the background is kind of, kind of amusing too. But the other thing is, you know, just talk just to finish up with the YouTube thing. And then I want to move on to one more thing before we wrap up. But um, a lot of them aren't comfortable being on camera. And that yeah. really helps me get guests on. So if I were, if, if for, for argument's sake, I was to go to like, you know, a, a video platform in addition to this, I don't know that a lot of the guests would be comfortable because they're not comfortable being on camera, which is, yeah. I get that and I respect that. And that's, that's, that's fine. But the audio only platform has helped me get a lot of people who would have been a little bit more reluctant if it was you know, video in addition to it. Oh, absolutely. And I run into that all the time. I mean, heck, Bree, like my partner, she hates being on camera, like hates it. And the only way she'll do it is if I'm like sitting there right next to her, you know, kind of egging her on. And then eventually, you know, she gets a little bit more comfortable. But like the anxiety 
she goes through before I click that record button is like wild. Like it shocks me every single time. And and I know speaking to like vendors and stuff at expos and stuff like at, at Tinley specifically, I had somebody where I walked up to his table and I, I, I don't even remember the table, so I couldn't name drop him or anything. Not that I'd want to, but um, like I walked up to the table, I was like, Oh, you know, and I kind of got the, a little bit of a weird sense that maybe I wasn't quite welcome with my camera. And I just said, Hey, you know, do, do I mind, do you mind if I record these snakes? And his reply to me was like, Oh man, you're the first person that has walked up and like asked, you know, a lot of times, and he's kind of a, uh, a jerk about it. And was like, a lot of times people just walk up and man, I don't want to be on your camera. And I'm like, okay, well, Hey, maybe that's why none of your snakes have sold. Cause you're kind of a, uh, a poo poo head, but uh, <laughs> like you know, it's and he's like, thanks for asking, like genuinely. And I was like, yeah, like no problem. I mean, I don't know why you have to be like, I wasn't going to record you anyways, but I'm glad you appreciate the question. <laughs> like, <laughs> thanks, I guess. And I, you know, took my footage and went away. But it's just interesting to see how many people really, really hate being on camera. Yeah. I, I like to make sure people feel comfortable because that's the other thing is a lot of people, they don't, they don't know what to expect and say, look, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's just two people talking. That's it. Yeah. Just two of us talking, yeah. ignore everything else, enjoy it, have fun with it. And, you know, people seem to respond well to that. It's just, you know, just get, get, do them, giving people the courtesy of explaining what's going to happen before it does alleviates a lot of anxiety. And absolutely, it's, that's another thing that's just helped me get people on the show who would be a little bit more reluctant you know sometimes it takes you know four or five six emails to get someone to commit and then sometimes it takes you know four years to get certain people to commit um um, (laughs) a couple of people out there listening who i want you on this show um (laughs) i'll get you i'll get you so um i want to kind of wrap up with um the coming year 2024 what are your goals project wise for the coming year Ooh, I didn't think about this question. Um, I would obviously the the new Histo build. That's, I mean, one of the main priorities. Um, I'd like to finish up a lot of projects. Thankfully, we have most of our animals are in brumation right now, so we'll have you know two, three, four months of less work in the reptile room. Um, and that includes like the rat snake tank that we still have to do. Uh, the tortoise pen for my tortoise, um, the histo build, and then all the Jenga that comes in between, like building a new tachydromus tank and a few other things like that. Like just kind of the thing that we fall into is because we basically maxed out the space in our room. One project has to be done before another project starts, which has to be done before the next thing starts. It's just that whole domino effect of like, you have to knock out that first one and then things, then you can work on the next one. Um, and so I'm really hoping to wrap up most of that. Like by the end of 2024, I'm really hoping that we are in a more or less stable state and, and not have so many kind of things piling up in the background. Um, I would love to produce Fuego. Um, I did have a successful clutch, uh, like clutch develop into tadpoles, uh, the end of September. So 
if the female's tending, in theory, it should be coming out. Like the froglet should be coming out basically now. Um, but I would love to get those producing. I did actually just recently find uh, my first froglets of the Bastimentos and the Bahia Grande, which are the Pumilio that I have. So that's that was I was so excited for that. Um, we are, like I mentioned a couple times, I am planning a primarily dart frog centric trip to Colombia. So I got myself and a group of friends that are going down there uh, at the beginning of March. So that will be one heck of a trip that I'm very much looking forward to. Um, uh, other than that, I mean, uh, I'm hoping for kind of our, our business side of things. Um, I'm hoping for a good production season and with the hog nose like this year all around pretty much universally was a pretty slow year for most people. Um, so I'm hoping that next year is a little bit bigger, uh, have a few more babies and, and have those going a little bit more. Um, trying to think of what else, um, it, it would be cool to produce the frogs, Although, uh, like the the tree frogs and whatnot, although that's not like a main priority by any means, you know, maybe we'll cycle them and just see what happens. And if they produce, great. If not, no real stress. Um, yeah, I, I got a lot of builds and like YouTube videos and stuff that I have commitments to that that I need to get done. So a lot, <laughs> a lot's on the menu for 2024. You know, Frog American Frog Day 2024 is going to be in New York, right? I know, but it's a, when we're in Columbia. Oh no, it's in October. No, that was the. No, yeah, that was the one that was in. Um, there's one happening like a frog get together. I don't know in Michigan in March, but yeah, the the October the October Frog Day I'd love to make it to as well. But October is going to be crazy because we have Animal Con one weekend. And then the next weekend is Tinley. So assuming we want to go to both of those, um, Frog Day is what? The end of the month? Like 27th it's, or something? It's October 26th. Okay. So that might be doable. That might be doable. And it's in no, it's in uh, New York, so it's close. <laughs> or closer, I guess. Yeah, just, just drive until you see, you know, just, you see people. <laughs> yeah gotta make it through buffalo and then it's just a lot of nothing and then new york hey yeah that's 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 yeah that's nothing so yeah i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna planning on being there actually i'm gonna get a table and um nice. i'm gonna have some i'm i discussed it with julio and i'm probably gonna be doing like some interviews on site um and i'm gonna have some stuff to vend as well because I've got, you know, I've got photo prints and whatnot that my wife makes. So we're, we're kind of planning on making a whole big day of it. So it nice. should be, That'll yeah, be, it's going to be a yeah. lot of fun. Any other big plans for you? Um, No, just kind of in a holding dream pattern. dream guests or anything? Uh, I mean, there's, I have some, I have some people lined up for the coming months that have st working on some interesting projects. And um, I've got, uh, I've got a couple of people lined up from outside the country, which is, cool it's it's a bit of a it's it's difficult to get um to to, to do interviews with people outside of the country just because of the time difference so yeah. i'm i yeah. i'm really fortunate i've got a couple of people lined up for january and february and um nice. i think that's going to bring an, an interesting dynamic so i have that and then just you know just the grind of just you know 
I'll skim through Google Scholar for you know a couple of hours a week looking for papers, read the abstract if it's something relatable, look for the authors, find the authors, email the authors, uh, hopefully get a response. And <laughs> hopefully was the key word yeah, there. <laughs> it's 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 it takes it takes a lot of time doing that, but yeah. um, you know, it's that's it's it's I I I really like stuff like that and getting people to agree to come on is is a lot of fun. But yeah, I don't I don't really have anything major plans. I mean, just survive um, survive Christmas and um, get caught up and take a little break for a couple of weeks just to just to record and get everything caught up because uh, the past couple of weeks kind of got away from me a little bit just from you know, other obligations. But um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm looking to upgrade a couple of things here and there. I'm looking to up, one of my blood pythons is in need of a an, an upgrade. I want to get him an AP tank. But the the nice. the lead time on the APs is so long. <laughs> it's like it, six months. It's it's like six months, and the prices are great. Yeah. I love the product. They come with nice sliding glass fronts, and they're just they're so much more affordable. So he's he's got to get an upgrade. And um, yeah, that's just you know, that's that's about it for me. Nice, nice. Yeah. Sounds like it'll be a good year. Excited to listen to all the podcasts yeah. that come out of it. <laughs> four, four, uh, four years. I can't believe it. Four, it's crazy how four. fast it's gone. I know. I know. Oh. What do you? What do you? You got Christmas plans? Um. Yeah. We're. Uh, my mom actually just retired this year, so that makes both my parents retired, and uh, she wanted one last family vacation. So, yeah, next weekend, actually, like not two days from now, I guess I'm dating the podcast, but not this weekend, but the 23rd, we're actually heading to Hawaii for a couple of weeks with my family. So I'm very, very excited for that. That'll be pretty much the first like actual vacation. You know, a lot of people are like, Oh, but you went to Madagascar. Oh, you went to Costa Rica. Like, I don't think people understand how, how demanding those uh, trips are. They're, they're certainly not a vacation. Uh, this will be like my first vacation and Oh boy, probably like six years, something like that. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to just kicking back on the beach, do some snorkeling, and and of course I'm gonna bring my camera and my drone and my 360 camera and all that stuff, and I'll probably make a short video out of it, but more so for memories than you know a whole ton of views. <laughs> you know we have dark frogs on in Hawaii, right? I know. Yeah. I, I, are there any in Maui? Do you know? I don't know. I don't. I don't know yeah. which islands have them, which don't. But I know there's there's erratus that were. I think they were released actually as a biological weapon against um, some sort of pest insect or something like that. But yeah, oh, they're out there. Yeah, I don't remember the exact yeah. story, but it was something to that effect. Yeah, I was gonna look into that, and I know there's chameleons and stuff there as well. And last time I was there like 11 years ago, something like that. Uh, we, we ended up finding some Jackson's chameleons. So I'm hoping that I can do the same this year and share that experience with Bree and my family. Yeah. Some, some guy actually got into a lot of trouble for illegally importing a whole bunch of dart frogs into Hawaii. It, it made like national news. Um, Whoa. but like, yeah, they, the Hawaii, like they take stuff real seriously there with their, with their oh, yeah. biological control. Oh boy. Yeah. It's, yeah. They don't, they don't mess around there. So, but yeah, I yeah. think at one point they had Boiga regularis imported there. I don't know if they're still there, but 
Uh, I know there are some pretty hefty ramifications from that because they started predating on native birds and such like that. So that that's that's one of the only Boiga species that's actually banned from import into the U.S. And I think that was why. <laughs> I think I remember something about that. Is that? It's uh, like the brown, the brown, cat snake the or brown whatever. cat snake. Yeah, yep. That's yeah. like public enemy number one. There, that's been going on for a long time. Actually, I think they. Yeah. I mean, if I'm wrong, correct me. I think it might have been Guam that they came in from. Uh yes, yeah. I think okay. you're right. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they ended up there, and that's just that was a whole big horror story. I just like our. I mean, the, the, I mean, Canada's. You guys don't have the the range of like biomes that we do here just because we've, I mean, we've got Hawaii, we've got Florida, we've got Washington state, we've got Maine, we've got, you know, Nebraska. There's a lot of different biomes here, but like yeah. our, our endanger, our invasive species here is like, it's, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're stuff. cold, cold and colder is basically our, uh, three climates here. So, yeah. <laughs> You live at the North Pole. What do you expect? Yeah, it's true. That's true. Every time I think of Canada, I always, I'm like, man, I'm like, he must look out his window and see like Santa's workshop like down the block. It's, guys are so far up there. Yeah, it's a short drive from here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, it's been fun. I want to, you know, thank you again for coming on and talk with me. I'm, I'm always happy to have you on this time of year. And um, yeah, you've got some cool projects lined up and... You know, it's always a blast talking to you. Absolutely. Likewise. I love coming on here and chatting with you and hopefully the audience that's still listening at the very end, hopefully you've enjoyed and, uh, and like the random tangents that we go on <laughs> the random YouTube conversations. Hopefully, uh, you stuck through that and, uh, made it to the end here. I, I love talking with you, Dan, and it's, it's always a pleasure. It's, it's a nice Christmas tradition. It is. It is. It's it's the official Amphibicast uh, holiday spectacular end of year celebration with Mike Titula, my favorite Canadian from the North Pole. Nice. <laughs> I love that title. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone. I, I, again, I want to thank everyone for making 2023 a great year. And, um, you know, it's always fun to have guests on and just kind of just vibe off of each other and um, discuss uh, you know, some interesting topics. And as I said earlier, I've got some really great people lined up coming for 2024. I'm really pleased to have some guests from outside the U.S. Uh, I've got some people lined up in Europe, which I'm really looking forward to making that happen. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And again, thank everybody who supported the show, the patrons, five-star reviewers on uh, the po Apple Podcast, Spotify. Uh, it goes a long way. It gives it meaning. It's been a great year for me because of all of you. So I want to thank everybody again. And uh, I'll catch up with you guys in 2024. Make sure you stay tuned. I've got a lot of great stuff coming up. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Whatever you guys are into, I wish you all the best. And I will catch up with you again next year.